I'm sure you would have explored some of those uh, breathing patterns around sort of like expiration and what sort of downstream effects does it have on the body? Okay, so I have, I have two points, I think, that uh, can help uh, address this. The first is that we originally thought when we identified the prebiotic complex that it was the sole source, not just for inspiration, but somehow for expiration. You know, that you have like a single oscillator, like day and night comes from one oscillator, that is the earth turning around. And so we thought there was one oscillator. But in the early 2000s, we got data suggesting that there may be a second oscillator that's primarily involved in generating expiratory movements. And what we did not fully appreciate was that at rest, expiration is passive. You inhale and you relax. And so when we did our experiments looking for places that may be involved with expiration, the regions that were involved in generating the passive expiration, there doesn't seem to be any. What seems to be is that there's a region involved in generating what we call active expiration. But in our experiments, we didn't have situations where we had active expiration. But then, in a way, we stumbled across this, and we were able to follow up on it. And we did identify a second region, which we're now convinced is responsible for generating active expiration. So while we're sitting here quietly talking, of course, we're using expiratory airflow to speak. But for our basic breathing, our expiration is passive. But when we need to increase our ventilation, we have to turn on this active expiration. And it seems to be separate. Now, one interesting question, being we talked about evolution, is why would it be separate? Well, if you go back to what I said about the evolution, invertebrates, the initial respiratory pattern was primarily expiratory. It was only later that mammals became inspiratory. And so the expiratory oscillator, we would suggest, persisted. And the inspiratory oscillator developed and became dominant because it allowed for much more efficient breathing pattern, which lungs with much greater surface area. So there, there, now there's clear evidence that there are two very distinct oscillators that in normal conditions are so tightly coupled, we can't really separate them. Now, as far as what kind of exercises or what kind of breathing patterns have what kind of outcomes I think we're, we're in the exploratory stage. I've read a lot about the different practices, breathing practices, and experimented with some of them myself. And I would say it seems quite evident that the different pa- breathing patterns can have different outcomes. And your question is why? And I think this goes to our more general idea about how breathing is influencing all these higher functions. In the past 15 years or so, many colleagues have identified rhythms in the brain that are breathing related. So they've been, uh, we've known for uh, maybe 100 years, maybe a little bit less, that there are oscillations in the brain. That is, things that don't seem to be tied to specific behavior, but activity waxes and wanes. And these typically range from a few times per second up to maybe 100 times per second. And they have different designations, uh, typically with Greek letters of alpha, beta, delta, and whatnot. 
And neuroscientists have been uh, investigating and trying to understand what role these oscillations play. And two ideas that seem to have favor is, one, it's important in what's called binding. We're having this conversation here. You hear my voice, you see my lips move, you see my face. You don't see this as three separate screens. You see this as one unified whole. And yet the sound is coming in through your ears. Anything related visually is coming through your eyes. So the question is, how does your brain put that all together? And when you look in detail at how the brain may be doing it, the timing of these signals is very important. In other words, if a signal is delayed a little bit, it may not be coming from the same place. And so how does the brain make sure that we know that the input coming into different places is really coming from the same origin? So one thing that it appears to do is to use these oscillations as sort of clocks, tick, tick, tick. And depending on when the signal comes in relative to that clock will indicate to the nervous system that they're more likely or less likely to be from the same source. So that seems to be rather important in holding our brain together. The second thing is in general signal processing, that is how information is processed in the brain, having these oscillations gives information locally a different valence whether the activity is on the peak of an oscillation and the low point of an oscillation. Now these oscillations have been known for a long time but what's become apparent in the past 15 years or so is that there's a a lot of regions of the brain that show significant oscillations that are tied to breathing including regions like the hippocampus which is very important for learning and memory. The prefrontal cortex is very important in higher function And originally, I think people didn't pay very much attention to it because the oscillations are relatively slow. We breathe, uh, you know, 10 to 20 times a minute every four or five seconds, let's say. And on the timescale of the brain, that seemed to be too slow. But now there's emerging data. There's emerging data probably over the past 10 years from other laboratories that if you interfere with these breathing oscillations, in experimental animals, mostly rodents, their behavior changes. And so there's mounting evidence that somehow this breathing rhythm is playing a role in signal processing. Now that said, any disturbance from the normal pattern will likely produce changes in the way the signal is processing. One analogy I'd like to use, and I've said this before, so people might have heard this, forgive me for repeating it. Let's imagine a uh, state of depression, and that it's caused by activity in a circuit of neurons going around and around, like it's a, a circuit that's reverberating. Now, in the nervous system, we know that if activity keeps repeating in the nervous system, it's likely to strengthen those connections. So now if you have a circuit that is involved in depression and it's going round and around and keeps going on, it's going to get stronger and stronger and stronger, which means that it's going to be harder to break. Now, how is that dealt with? Well, there's pharmacological treatments, there's verbal therapy, but in extreme cases, what has proven to be effective for refractory depression is electroconvulsive shock, where they put massive electrodes on the head, 
and they put a large electrical signal, which is under proper supervision is safe, into the brain. And people who have severe depression report they get some relief. And if it's repeated over time, they get more continual relief. What is that shock doing? Well, in a way, it's disrupting the activity in that circuit. And we know in the nervous system, when activity gets disrupted, it's quite possibly leading to weakening of synapses. So you weaken the synapses and you do it over time, they can get so weak that the circuit doesn't work so well anymore and you get some relief from depression. Now, of course, that electroconvulsive shock is very heroic. A more recent approach is to use more focal shock with deep brain stimulation where electrodes are planted in particular parts of the brain where disrupting the circuits seems to produce relief for depression. Now, under the assumption that breathing rhythm is present in these circuits, and there's good evidence that it's in regions of brain that could be involved, when you disrupt the breathing pattern, that's going to disrupt the signal processing in that circuit. And if you do it for 30 minutes, you may get some relief. If you do it for 30 minutes a day, day after day after day, you can begin to dissolve the circuit. And moreover, we all know that taking a single deep breath when we're anxious seems to relax us. So even transiently, if you disrupt the circuit, the signal now gets takes time to come back to order. So this is part one of my answer. Now, part two is we don't understand quite how the breathing rhythm is critical in these process of binding and signal processing. But it's not difficult to imagine that if you change breathing in different ways, you will affect how the circuit that gets disrupted responds. So if you breathe fast and shallow or fast and deep, or you breathe box breathing slow or prayama, or you focus on active expiration, all these are different kinds of disruptions. And it's very easy to see that each different kind of disruption will produce a different effect. To expand on your, your question, you know, there's some discussion, a lot of discussion about nasal versus mouth breathing. And we know that signals that are breathing related coming from the nose are very powerful in affecting brain function, but they're not the be all and end all. If we block the nasal signal, we still get signals related to breathing going into the brain. And so mouth breathing versus nose breathing, particularly if it's during the breathing practice, could very well have different effects. So I did a uh, breathwork detox practice uh, recently, and it involved a lot of active expiration. And my personal response was the effect was fairly powerful, but this is a, a one-off. It's not a controlled experiment, but I would say it had an effect. Whether it was a differential effect versus prayama or box breathing, I my own experience is not sufficient enough, and I don't uh, know that there is good experimental data, which is always hard to get in humans, that could differentiate it. But as a premise, I would argue that it's quite reasonable. Well, what's fascinating is that, first of all, your openness to traditional systems and their trace back to science. Generally, what we have seen in many fields and spaces is that there's always a two-lane approach, which is here's the science approach and it's not, it doesn't have to do anything with philosophy and here's the philosophical <laughs> approach. But there is so much of 
openness and overlap, which is which is very very fascinating to see. Um, well, I could tell you there was there was one thing we've done in the lab recently that it really has consolidated my point of view that you described. We were interested in whether controlled breathing in rodents would affect their behavior. Because one can argue that in humans, it's a placebo effect, that if I tell you changing your breathing is going to make you feel better, maybe it has nothing to do with your breathing, maybe it has to do with the fact I suggested it. So we spent a lot of time trying to see if we could change the pattern of breathing in rodents in ways that they embrace, that, that is, they don't object to, and whether that changes their uh, response to behavior. So these are new experiments, but we have one very exciting result when the process of now writing up. We're able to slow the breathing pattern in awake mice. These are just mice in a chamber. They're not been, um, and um, we're able to slow their breathing by a factor of about 10. So normally they're breathing four times a second, and now they're breathing every couple of seconds. And they seem to be quite fine with it, the best we can observe. We do this for 30 minutes a day for four weeks. And then we test them in a standard fear response that psychologists have shown in mice is reflective of fear and relates very much to certain kinds of fear in humans. So it's a good, very, very well vetted test. And we compared the mice that we put through the slow breathing protocol with mice that were handled in exactly the same way, but we did not slow their breathing. So we had them 30 minutes a day, we just didn't slow their breathing down. The mice that went through this, the uh, control mice that didn't have the slow breathing had a certain level of fear response. Our mice that went through our conditioning experiments, where we slowed their breathing, had a remarkable decrease in their fear response. It didn't go to zero. We didn't expect it to go to zero, but it was remarkable. It's as strong an effect as psychologists see with almost any manipulation designed to reduce fear. And I have to say, this is not my judgment. We are working with Michael Fanzalo, who is one of the world's experts on fear, and he himself was quite impressed with this data. So the fact that you can see it in mice means two things. One is it's highly unlikely to be a placebo effect because mice don't believe in placebos. And secondly, it now gives us a platform to try and investigate mechanisms that are difficult or impossible or unethical to do in humans. So we're very excited about this. And it says that this is a bona fide effect. It's not some, someone mesmerizing you into believing something that has nothing to do with breathing. We really think that the data for breathing is now absolute. I also think that this is a fundamental platform shift in terms of how any of these, you can say, in this case, let's say a specific breathing pattern is getting tested from, let's say, your, your philosophy to science. You sort of like created like a platform to negate what could be called out as placebo or let's say any other effect that sort of like dilute the effects of this experiment and maybe this would be replicated to every other aspect of experimentation like in this case meditation amygdala activation and the replication in mice love to touch on this aspect of like i think in some of your other work you mentioned that you had experienced the ucla meditation and mindfulness work as well 
we ourselves have uh, done a bunch of work with UCLA in the past around meditation and mindfulness. 